Hello ladies and gentlemen welcome to the 100th episode of the Two Bros podcast can't believe it is the 100 and i've taken over the hosting duties and i'm going to be interviewing my bro about his rather extraordinary experiences over the last half a year or so welcome i i should say welcome to you it's been a while since you've appeared on the show brother it's been what some 50 odd episodes i think it's been a while well i would like to think of it as a longish hiatus yeah okay what is it called legalese eh it's called legalese <laughs> it's called uh, marketing gobbledygook gobbledygook i like it but it takes me back bro remember when we started this is the height of the pandemic i we we used to discuss football over uh, phone calls and we said you know if we just record it it should just, it'll just be a good episode that's where it began i think we started recording and if you go back to the original recordings there was no mic there was no intro music it was just us talking and we were so awkward <laughs> in the first episode i don't know if you heard it again but that is still some it's it's a very it's a highly played episode it's got like some 70 80 odd plays which is one of the highest uh, higher ones i would say yeah man it takes me back september 2020 apparently i think i read somebody saying that do a podcast assuming you have zero audience you know That's and true. i like I like this thought that it's essentially a chronicle of our conversations. Yeah, yeah, that's something true. to look back, something to look back at. Yeah. But yeah, so it's, it's... without ado, let's let's dive into what you've been up to, which is rather a lot. Yeah. And I know you've been uh, you've been recording some of these experiences for people. But uh, I'm going to take everybody through essentially what you've done. which mm-hmm. is a not so uncommon thing abroad which is to take a gap year you know except that people take gap years between their education programs and you've taken a gap year from your uh, day job for over a decade yeah and uh, you're going back into education that's true yeah and I mean, while people do while people do one or two things you've done a whole bunch of things Yeah I mean I figured this is the this is my time and I mean you know you've seen my life I mean I before I became a second I was doing 10 months I'd see there was barely any time and when I used to come back after 5 months I used to be so jaded and so drained I used to just like park myself just download stuff and just watch uh, stuff on my laptop and that was my life and two and a half months of that just recuperating just preparing for another 5 months I'd see and then I would be off again it was hardly any time and it was it was now that I had all kinds of time and then I was like might as well you know might as well do everything i've ever wanted to do so i've got quite the list here and you know social media rewards people who do one thing mm. and they do one thing you know deeply and well and i guess that's the essence of being a professional you know you take something up as a profession mm-hmm. but you've actually gone through four or five things and that in a very short span of time so let me let me get one thing out of the way mm. okay Out of, out of these four or five things, and I'm going to list them for our uh, listeners. Uh, you've bought a biggish bike, a middleweight, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and you've uh, ridden about ten thousand kilometers around India. Yeah, and you've done ten thousand kilometers without doing the typical Manali, Ladakh, you know, circuits. Yeah, so you've basically done roads that people do sporadically, but not sort of in a contingent, mm-hmm. uh, contiguous. what what is the word i'm looking for continuous cogent cogent okay cogent uh, <clears throat> trip you've done uh, some you've you've obtained your open water diving license mhm you have become a certified drone pilot that's correct yeah right 
and finally you've changed careers from being a uh, big an engineer mm-hmm. on board navy container ship for 10 plus years and you're now going to pursue space engineering that's correct yeah do you want to add anything to this very <laughs> bewildering man i i don't know you know it's i i, I tell you what i was i remember i was sitting uh, and this is all sporadic because uh, i mean i have talked about this uh, life was kind of kicking my ass towards the end of last year i was like i was getting a bit sick and tired of uh, studying for things and not things not working out personally you know some relationships fell through it was it was a difficult time and i was like i need to take charge of my life again I remember I was sitting in uh, Noida where the parents are and I opened up a newspaper and it said something like uh, you know we we require drone pilots so I said okay let's let's do this you know let's study this and then I opened another page it said uh, underwater diving something I saw an ad on uh, Instagram I said okay let's do that I just became you've seen the movie yes man right jim carrey I just said yes to everything I was like this is my time I'm just going to do it and that's it I'm not going to wait for anyone I'm going to write my own script I'm just going to do it and uh, whatever happens happens so that was that was the motivation behind uh, everything the career change of course was a more deliberate thought which was uh, you know festering for a couple of months and then it finally materialized but everything else was just spontaneous as hell yeah Let's digress for a minute and tell our listeners from the next generation that uh, Yes Man is a movie. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, a soul-sucking job, and he attends the seminar where he's challenged to say yes to every single opportunity that comes his way. It's a rather yeah. funny movie. Yeah, but uh, coming back to the topic, so you mentioned that life was kicking you, right? Yeah. So. Walk me through your thought process. I mean, of course, the career change built up over a time, mm-hmm. and I'm privy to some of that. But uh, do you see all your adventures as a series of cascading yeses, or did you, or do you think that once the first dam broke, that it was easier for do for you to say yes to every single thing after that? No. So it all started with an idea. I realized I was not going to go back to sea. the this time when i came back in uh, late september i realized that i was not going to go back that was that was always the plan and then uh, over the next couple of weeks my schedule kind of lined up where i realized i had to give a gre exam towards the end of november and i had a gate exam in february so I, and after that i would have to wait a couple of months for my uh, results to come out and for the university to send their acceptance or rejection or whatever so i had time right there and I realized that yes I I this this is let's say it was a motivation like I'm going to put myself through hell I'm just going to study I remember I was in Pune in November and all I did was study I didn't go anywhere for my GRE I was just sitting in your little office over there So this was the plan like put yourself through hell right now and then we uh, reward ourselves after everything is done that was the plan and then slowly but surely everything just the pieces kind of fell into place and I just started looking at opportunities of what I really wanted to do you know Uh the sad thing is I for the first time in my life I traveled solo back in March sorry February 2020 that was just before the pandemic and I I went to Nepal I did the whole bungee jumping all kinds of crazy madness and I realized okay you know traveling can be fun if you indulge in certain activities but too bad you know we had a lockdown and the whole pandemic after that never got a chance to step out so I pulled on that thread I said I want to travel but this time let me let me do my country and the thought dawned on me that I might be leaving uh india because i was applying to universities abroad so i thought this is my time to at least see my country once properly uh before i leave 
So, and after that, everything just kind of fell into place and that's it. So this would be of interest for people who, you know, uh, feel stuck in their careers. And as more and more Indians get out of the funk of the previous generation, which was all about survival and, you know, that scarcity mindset and are able to take six, nine, ten months off their careers to take a good, long, hard look at is this what I want to do for the rest of my life? Maybe a lot of people in their late 20s, early 30s will figure that, uh, you know what, maybe I need some time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, without getting into the specifics and numbers of it, can you tell the listeners a little bit about uh, whether it was scary, you know, financially to sort of do this, whether it was, uh, you know, easy, what were some of the things that went through your mind when you considered a career change? I mean, I, I have never been money-minded. I've, I've always been a simple guy. Money never mattered to me, uh, honestly. And I, I don't think it should. But for me, it was... And this this whole mindset changed after I picked up my rank as a second engineer. Then I was suddenly doing three months and three months, three months on, three months off. And then it opened up such a lot of free time for me, you know. And then that's when I started, really started living. I remember I was 28 when I picked up my rank. And then I was doing all these online courses. I picked up sports. I started doing all kinds of things. And then life just became something else. And I developed this thirst for knowledge. And, you know, I, I reached a stage where I was financially stable, let's say relatively, but living within my means. I'm not, uh, I don't want to like uh, have beamers or whatever in my garage. I'm a very simple guy. But at some point, the work stopped being rewarding in itself because of what it became. Like, you know, I've been with the same company right after 12. So that's 2006. I saw how my company had transitioned. I saw how the life had changed. I saw how the priorities had shifted. And I saw how I was uh, no longer a valued uh, employee. Certain incidents happened, which I won't get into because fine. I mean, they gave me a livelihood for so many years. They are now different. They're money-minded. It's, it's their prerogative. They're a business after all. So I felt like... I felt undervalued, underappreciated. I felt like uh, even after giving 15 years of the company, I was not treated fairly. And then I decided I can, I deserve better. I, I can do better. And I felt like I was stagnating more and more than that. I felt like I was stagnating. I wasn't learning anything. I was on the same kinds of ships, doing the same kinds of runs, same kind of work. It stopped being rewarding. Now there are, there are two options, like for people and I'm most, let's say most people in our generation, not just Indians, any, any other generation, you would... If you have a stable job, stable income, stable sort of a life, you know, your timings are sort of stable, you kind of like you get stuck and you're okay with it. You give, you turn more towards the family side of life, you know, you just settle down and do whatever. I, I wasn't entirely keen on that. So for me, I still felt like I was relatively young, at least in my mindset. I mean, my age is, I'm in my mid thirties now, but still, I felt this is the right time to make a change. I still had energy. I was still relatively fit. I still had, uh, you know, keen intellect and I had a thirst for knowledge that uh, all these factors combined, I think that drove me towards this career change. Scary, not so much because again, I, I, I live a very frugal life. You know this, <laughs> I don't spend much, but uh, I had money in the bank and I had a clear vision of what I wanted. I cut back on certain costs. Like I was going to buy a house, which I canceled and I had to give up on a lot of things. But uh, yeah, I guess that's, you know, to get some, you have to lose some. For the listeners here at this point, I would like to chime in as someone who's been privy to Arjun's life choices and spent choices. Arjun does not live a frugal life. <laughs> what <laughs> <His> are you? <laughs> only in 
comparison to uh, the kind of lifestyle you see you know in big cities of india now where people first up they try and buy a house they then try buy try and buy a car and before you know it you're paying for your kids education and so on and so forth and your liabilities have increased so much that you have no leeway no no flex room Mm-hmm. and uh, arjun in that sense is liability free and he doesn't have any vices nor does he have any uh, you know areas where a lot of money is burned however let's talk about the first thing that you picked up this uh, you know this gap year mm-hmm. which is a drone flying oh, yeah. how did that start and uh, what is the process i mean in india can anyone be a drone pilot talk to people about uh, you know how you got there So I already read, it's a, there's an episode out of how to be a drone pilot I think it's episode 98 99 whatever it's very simple I think you need a class you have to be a class 10th graduate and you need to have an aadhar card or something and that's about it pay them again institutes all over the country again you have to look for dgc approved uh, institutes which offer you like a proper certification which is recognized in india at least and uh, then you just got to turn up and uh, it's five days of classes first day is theory about the rules of india and how uh, how they've changed over the couple of years like how we've gone from a complete ban on drones to now like drones basically being available everywhere uh, second day is assembly of a drone drone components is in that third day is simulator training which is a lot of fun and these simulators are quite good they're very good i was very impressed and uh, the last two days are actual drone flying and then you have to fly patterns which are recorded and and the last days is tiny little viva where they ask you questions based on these 20 pages of drone laws and then you graduate and then you have a license simple so a lot of people are flying drones yeah. and i'm pretty sure most of them are unlicensed you know yeah. i employ drone operators uh, indirectly because mm. we shoot a lot of content and uh, what are the ramifications of doing this without a license you know this really irks me man like it's it's all over social media like you people buy drones and okay so for a nano drone you don't need to be licensed but still your drone needs to be registered and you just can't assemble a drone and fly it you need a type approval certificate all these things are it's common knowledge for somebody who's attended classes but nobody care you nobody cares uh, like just the other day i got into a confrontation with a gentleman who claimed that he knew more about drone laws than i did and then he was talking just nonsense Dynamic fashion wise again it's law enforcement if if the police uh, catch you flying drones over something they can confiscate it and it's it can be a fine it can be if you let's say i think the other day somebody was flying a drone above the pm's house or something and they shot it down and if they are caught you know it's in some really sensitive areas you can be arrested in suspicion of i don't know suspicious activities it's all kinds of things you know though though that's not specified by drone laws that comes under uh, the purview of the police so who knows anything can be happen can be a fine can be imprisonment based on the severity of uh, where you are and again it can straight away lead to confiscation of your drone so that's that's all cancellation of your registration number all kinds of things can happen but uh, people don't care yeah i see so uh, the biggest thing of course that you did was being a non uh, you know rider mm-hmm. i don't think you even you've even driven too much i mean you've driven in delhi and thereabouts and maybe one or two intercity trips but maybe a lifetime riding driving experiences less than 10000 kilometers and of this 9900 kilometers are on in a car and 100 odd kilometers on a bike and that too the bike that i used to have yeah. which you <laughs> you you know borrow behind my back and i remember that one accident you got into where and you wouldn't show me your arm and everything was yeah yeah, yeah yeah so from there uh, how did you decide to get into riding once mm-hmm. again first of all 
uh, why not a car because mm-hmm. every uh, person after they start earning they want to buy a car you know because of course our weather is weird our roads are dicey mm-hmm. our traffic is bad so why a bike number one and uh, why get back into biking where you've never really been into biking for in the first place so i think i think this is a part of the blame has to come to you because you've been uh, sending me all these pictures of bikes or these cool looking you know long cruisers indians and god knows whatever bikes and i was i got curious and this is after the plan was set in place that okay post my exam in uh, february i would set out and travel india now then i had three options either i take buses and trains a series of buses and trains uh but again you struggle with last mile connectivity obviously because bus stop drops you only so far then you have to struggle and look for autos and some cities may not have uber and you know it's is a problem uh or i could go in a car but then you get cars i think severely restrict you in uh, because some of the roads i drove on you cannot take a car there okay the third choice was taking a bike and that meant being at one with the element and then you know you're open you're a part of the environment i think that really appealed to me in a car you're still caged and in a, in a in the bikers community you call people who drive cars are called cagers because they stay inside a cage <laughs> you know uh, for i it something appealed to me you know just being on a motorcycle and uh, being out on the road the open road it it appealed to me and i realized uh, that's the way to go so i'm somebody who's done about uh, 50000 kilometers on a bike mm. over 7 uh, or 8 years of yeah. owning a bike uh, from right from the age of 18 to about 22 23 24 actually and then i moved to owning a car and i've driven for the last uh, 12 years now mm-hmm. and i've done maybe 125000 kilometers in a car so i feel qualified to say this that i wholeheartedly agree with you yeah. you know on a bike you're one with the surroundings the margin mm-hmm. of error the margin of uh, you know drifting off is negligible mm-hmm. yeah whereas a car is forgiving in the sense that you know it hurts other things and people more than it hurts you and you know of course there's everybody there's that cage built in around you yeah the motorcycling experience is more pure mm-hmm. you know and uh, while there's a big divide between drivers and riders i think that at the heart everybody sort of dying to explore of course at a superficial level but also i think the journey outside is also a journey within you know mm-hmm. you sort of want to disconnect you want to look at some landscapes the act of moving i think is fundamental to the human experience you know that I agree moving with. through space and time yeah yeah and in a sense uh, Uh, that's what you've done 10000 kilometers around the country so uh, did did it unfold step by step layer by layer or did you on the first day of getting the bike decide that you know uh, this is what i'm going to do no it was already decided i i knew i was going to drive across india what was uh, important was to get a hang of the bike so i picked up the bike like uh, late december it was a new year's gift to myself you were there and uh, obviously i had a month i had january to uh, figure out how to ride it and you know test it out in different conditions and by february i was supposed to head out and uh, yeah that was it now it just boiled down to what kind of a bike and what caliber of a bike because obviously there's this market is flooded there's all kinds of bikes of all kinds of powers and all kinds of makes and models and types and builds and whatever once i figured that out and once i actually went into a test drive of this bike i was convinced that this is the right fit for me again being a kind of journey i was going to undertake and the kind of driving experience i had it kind of fit both of them together like it's big enough friendly yet it's still rugged it's still got power with when you when you want it 
and it's a it's a premium brand so you can uh, you know you can rely on the quality and it is not it's not going to die on you uh yeah once i figured that out then it was just a case of getting used to biking and there, i did a lot of biking in gurgaon and you know the kind of roads here the kind of traffic here once i got used to that uh i had slowly developed a little bit of confidence and regarding the trip itself i had i think i just had two destinations in mind to begin with uh one was the thar desert which is to our west and then the run of kutch that's it these were my two destinations to begin with after that i basically i've just i've just been winging it <laughs> that's i mean it's just been short term plans i didn't map out every single day like this day i'm going to be here this day i'm going to be here. i woke up uh, like i would reach a uh, reach a place see how i felt if i felt up for a long ride or if i felt like uh, i need a shorter ride and i booked my next destination the day before and that's just how it went so most of these places that i ended up in were totally sporadic and uh, yeah that's i think that that i like that spontaneity i don't like sticking to a schedule where i need to do this and get here by this time i don't like that i like the fluidity of it all and i think that that just worked out yeah let's talk about the buying decision a bit because yeah. you know uh, in the industry there are a whole host of media houses mm-hmm. influencers and really i think this is one of those categories where everyone seems to have an opinion about what bike to buy mm-hmm. so talk to me as a newbie as a you know guy with a relatively flexible budget known drastic need to commute commute why and how did you end up where you ended up and you know tell me why did you consider like a 250 cc bike or you know a dominar or a, a ninja or you know why not a long cruiser like a liter class cruiser so how did you end up here talk talk to me a little bit about it no that, that's a bit tricky i mean i remember we were uh, i think we were talking about you had shared some picture of some bike i can't remember which bike it was and then i i told you that this is not the kind of bike i like i like these bikes and i remember i ended up ending up ending up on uh, the scout indian bobber that kind of a look is what really appealed to me and then i somehow ended up on a triumph website where they had the uh, scout bonneville bobber which is also a similar kind of line then i ended up on the triumph website i think you shared a triumph bike with me or something uh speed triple i think it was or uh, i don't know which one but anyway so i went on their website and i looked up some uh, you know uh, motorcycles and then i finally saw the trident and that the look of the bike you know it's the neo retro thing it's it's got that old looking headlamp it's got that naked uh, you know fairing and this and that and then it still got all the modern gadgets it's got turn by turn navigation it's got abs it's got anti lock it's got uh, attraction control of all things or a bike this is never heard of in my at least for me it wasn't heard of and uh, all that made sense and then i did a ton of uh, research on on youtube about how the trident is and every single person said it's a fantastic bike if you're a beginner it's got a, a muted response and then it's uh, it's easy to ride and then i did a lot of research let me let me come in here for a bit yeah you said it's great for beginners so i'm yeah. assuming you were looking at a lot of european reviews because yes. yeah. Yeah, in yeah. india in india the beginner circuit really is you know after you get past the commuter segments which are all under 200 cc mm. there's a whole host of vstroms and dominars and verse uh, uh, the ninja 300 and the cb300x mm-hmm. you know and you've got a whole bunch of these so why not these 
I mean, the the Trident is a good beginner's bike from a Westerner's perspective, right? I think it's something about the brand. I think I got swayed by the brand Triumph. I mean, that goes back to our days of watching Mission Impossible 2. I think something swayed me there. I don't know. I can't even put my... It's it's marketing. You guys know what you do. I don't know why I got swayed. I don't know what witchcraft there is. At the, at the heart <laughs> of it. Okay. And, and at the heart of it, a purchase decision in a high involvement category is emotional. Exactly. And I right? remember... We, we rationalize it. Yeah. We rationalize it by saying, yeah, okay, it's got this. It's got traction control and this and that. But yeah. you, by your own admission, are, uh, you know, acknowledging that all your research was essentially just to validate the Trident. Yeah. And it I remember, wasn't, yeah. it wasn't Trident versus something else. No. I remember I talked to you about this. I was at the showroom of Tribe after I had taken a test drive and uh, you had said, what are you doing driving 660cc motorcycles? You have no experience. You've driven a 150 Pulsar like 10 years ago. What are you doing? And I remember how strongly you opposed this decision. You're like, do not do it. Buy a car. I will, uh, you, I'll go halfsies on a car. You just take a car. Don't buy a bike. And I remember how, you know, you were dead against it, if you remember. But I... I, I told you, it's not a rational decision. It's, it's totally emotional. It makes no sense. But it feels right. And I mean, that's that's what I did. And what I liked I, about I the Trident was it's 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 not it wasn't a big bike. It wasn't very heavy. It was it was it had a lot of power. It was light. It was compact. It was easy to handle. And it I, at no point did it feel like it was running away from me. You know how some of these super bikes, they just kind of you feel like you give it the beans and it just runs away. You feel like you're not in control anymore. With this bike, I always felt in control. And that gave me a sense of safety that I can handle this. And that one five kilometer loop around from the showroom back to the showroom in Gurgaon uh, convinced me that yes, I can handle this bike. I got this. And that was it. The rest is history. Okay. So in research, we like to do this. Uh, if not this, then what test? Mm -hmm. You know, just to, just to ascertain how strong your bond was with your purchase decision. So seven months, eight months down the line, let me ask you this question. If the Trident had not been in the picture, let's assume it's not available in India. Okay. Then what? I, I would have stuck with the styling. Uh, so Triumph has similar bikes. The Speed Twin, the Bonnevilles, those those just kind of appealed to me. Those kind of looked like, uh, what didn't appeal to me was like they have a really flat seat. So it looks like a really flat, from your profile view, it looks really flat uh, when, when you look at it from the side. It looks, like, it looks really old. With the Trident, it had that sporty a neo retro they call it sporty kind of a you know curves and then it had that you know big round headlamp in the front uh, so if not that i would have gone for probably a bonneville or something you know maybe a you know i don't know why i didn't look at the tiger 660 which was it was so i told uh, the the uh, showroom that i intend to embark on this journey but at no point did they recommend a tiger to me because that is built for things like these you know and it's it's the same engine on a you know much you know bigger frame or whatever. I don't know. I just never looked at the Tiger. I just I just looked at what appealed to me, and I I bought it. <laughs> yeah. There's a and, there's a new uh, there's a new series, uh, the Speed 400 and the Scrambler yeah. 400X. Yeah. If these were available back then, do you think the Scrambler 400X would have caught your attention? I mean, for sure. I mean, so okay. Back then, I didn't know what. Uh, this much weight feels like on a bike, what this much, this much power feels like on a bike. So I had no reference. But now if you ask me to go from a 81 horsepower bike down to a 38 horsepower bike, then I'll be like, okay, this feels like it's a, it's a bullock car. It's slowish. And it's just a, it's a difference of 10 kilograms. So I'll be able to feel the weight uh, difference and the power difference, the power to weight ratio. I'll be able to feel it. 
uh now i only see myself going up in the cc categories rather than below and even the horsepower thing uh scrambler but if i'd seen it uh, earlier that would have made a lot of sense to me because okay a it was cheaper to buy much cheaper to buy and b it was a lot more manageable power and uh, the scrambler for instance the scrambler is built for you know off road uh, condition and some of these roads which i was on were really terrible and that would have come in handy maybe i would have gone for the scrambler so who's to say what i would have done yeah so in the auto world they say there's no replacement for displacement mm-hmm. you know and this is really the american philosophy where in the bigger engine the bigger the engine the more volume it displaces you know the more fuel you burn yeah. the more power you produce that way whereas the japanese philosophy really is to put more tech and yeah. extract the maximum juice because mm-hmm. you know they had capacity and emission norms even before the west did so where do you stand on this for example hypothetically tomorrow would you buy a 500 cc mm-hmm. which is producing a similar amount of power but you know it's got uh more tech in the chassis lighter etc essentially a sportier agile more tech laced motorcycle or an easier conventional for example let me give you some real world examples a 650 cc v twin engine producing 50 horsepower 60 horsepower or a 400 500 cc motorcycle producing 75 horsepower but weighing even lesser than your trident see again now that depends on what usage you have and now i can say this after i've ridden this much i know that certain bikes only thrive in certain environments it depends on what your usage is if you're just a city rider and again no point buying a higher caliber bike and uh, if if it's that if that's your daily commuter in a city like gurgaon or delhi you know you're just going to be stuck behind some guy some guy's alto and then you'll just be like why am I, what am i doing here and mind you these higher cc bikes they really do heat up a bit like i was in delhi on the last day when i had to spoiler alert give the bike away <laughs> i developed heating problems on the trident for the first time because there was just stop and uh, start and stop traffic in narayana all the way till the i could see and then the bike overheated so you you really struggle with this in india and again for daily commuters i would say you were better off with something more agile something even lower on power because you're not going to be you know going flat out at at any point let's say luck you might be lucky you get a little bit of a stretch which is open on some odd hour but that's about it uh if you are going for longer cruises i would recommend uh, that again that changes the whole thing you know you need uh, you need horsepower you need stability you need ruggedness you know something which can handle the terrain like some of these bikers are ending up in zanskar and god knows where else you need something you know uh, sturdy there and your city commuter yes people end up with activas and they've gone from kerala to kanyakumari can sorry kerala to kashmir on an activa people do these kind of things but for a beginner i wouldn't recommend it so again depends on what usage you have if you're a city rider if you just want to cruise around you know go to the shops go to your friends you know this and that maybe go for a weekend ride so you're you're okay with about the 400 500 cc bit somewhere between 50 to 40 to 50 to 60 horsepower if you're okay there you can handle it right uh, you want to go for more premium bikes but then that restricts you like for instance people with ducati panigales show up uh, on these uh, sunday super bike rides but then that's it that's your window you can't drive a panigale in peak rush hour traffic you just can't you can't do it depends depends on how you plan to use it so i think most bikers have a couple of bikes one is your daily commuter one is your weekend uh, rocket and uh, others your cruisers and stuff so yeah enough about the bikes let's talk about the journey yeah talk to me why rajasthan why why that to begin with uh i think i was 
I don't know. I mean, again, I can't justify any of these decisions that I made. I don't know what <laughs> what I was on. I guess I was. It's nearby. If something went wrong, I was easy to come back. Number one, and uh, I used Rajasthan as a proving grounds to see if I can actually do it because the plan was obviously Pan India. It was a, it was to be seen if I was going to do it on a bike or not. And then I'd heard good things about Rajasthan roads, uh, less traffic, and uh, I. Again, I think it was something about the allure of the Thar Desert. I mean, I wanted to see actual sand dunes. I mean, we did four years in Jodhpur and we we never saw proper sand dunes uh, back then. So I, I don't know, something about it that I wanted to see proper, proper sand dunes. And again, combination of things. And that's what my phase one was uh, heading to the Thar Desert. Yeah. I still remember the surprise when he showed up in Pune. <laughs> I well, till that day I think it hadn't sunk in what you're doing yeah but when you told me that yeah from Rajasthan Jaisalmer actually you're just gonna st- start heading down until you get to Pune mm. I was thinking that you know I'm in some sort of parallel reality where you're the biker and I'm you know I've never ever biked a single day in my life <laughs> and I still remember when you showed up you know with your riding jacket and riding pants and everything and i'm like who's this guy <laughs> so yeah. give 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 me the highlights of uh, that particular leg of the journey from rajasthan down to pune and you know apart from the biking stuff tell us tell me more about india and what you saw on the western side i i'll i'll take you a little bit further i think on my first day i had just purchased uh, saddle bags which i put on the back of the bike and i wasn't sure if they were going to work because it was just a series of uh, straps and clips and a uh, bunch of things and again as i went further i learned more about what how i need to optimize my journey so i had saddle bags on either side of the seat and then i had a backpack which i was wearing and that was a mistake that was mistake number 1 and when i head out for jaipur which was my first stop i was convinced that the bags are just going to fly off the rear seat because there was nothing in my opinion there was nothing holding them in place it was just the weight of the stuff that was in it and uh, gravity that's about it i think it worked but i was i was scared i was scared as hell and again back then i was not used to higher speeds i went from i think gurgaon to jaipur in i don't know 6 to 8 hours and i did not go above 50 60 i was just taking being very cautious the road was good Uh, there were stretches of heavy traffic, uh, a lot of trucks, this and that. And the first day was just actual fear. It was, <laughs> I was worried. You hear these horror stories, right? Accidents on Jaipur, Delhi Jaipur Highway, truck turned over, somebody hit an SUV, so many people died. You hear these things, and you're like, man, this must be like a battle zone. Like there's twisted metal stuff going on on these roads. I don't know what's going on. There was actual fear. Then finally, when I made it, I was like, I was a bit relieved. And then I had learned some lessons about what I need to do. uh then i rallied forward towards jaisalmer and even beyond to the pakistan border and then again i didn't know and this was dad's idea by the way and mind you dad uh, still doesn't know that i had a bike and i did this whole thing on a bike that was that's hilarious uh, i remember i was in jaisalmer i called dad and he said you must go to longewala and it's a good thing i booked two nights in jaisalmer because i just wanted to be there because that was phase one that was what i wanted to see i went to longewala on his uh, recommendation that i went further to the park border on that stretch and it's 70 what a blessing what a road that is completely empty cutting through thar desert it's a two lane highway it's fantastic it's picturesque i i'm just sad i didn't have my drone back then because the things i would have captured uh, it would have been so stunning and uh, what do i tell you i mean it kind of 
changed a lot of perception. I mean, you hear so much negativity in the media where you're like, things are burning, the country is burning, recession this and corrupt ministry that and people dying here, people doing this. Yes, fine. That's, but that's, that's not the whole reality. I found peace. I found nice people on the road. I found people who flagged me down and wanted to know about the bike, know about what I was doing. Uh, petrol pump attendants who were, who wanted a picture with me, you know. These, I, I just, it, my, my perception changed, man. There's just like so much we don't get to see. We think that the world is on fire. But if you really set out there, it's it's quite a place. I mean, yeah, I, I just I just couldn't. Uh, it, it was a total rewiring job, honestly, of reality, in my opinion. Yeah. Having lived in many cities around India and having worked in many cities around India, I know that there are nuances where you learn only when you live there. Yeah, that's right. And you know, it's useful imagining India not as a country, but as a continent like Europe, mm-hmm. where every part of the country is different. Every state is actually a different country. Yeah. When I ask you what stays with you from those days in Rajasthan and Gujarat and then later Maharashtra, how would you describe these places and the people that belong in these places? You know, I, I I get these glimpses now. Based, I mean, obviously, this is a couple of months uh, after I'd finished my ride. And then uh, based on something that would happen in my daily life, I would get a glimpse of some part of my ride in some corner of the country, which I was in. And I, I, it's it just memory comes uh, flooding back. What do I remember? I think my takeaway from Rajasthan has got to be uh, just fantastic roads, man. And just uh, emptiness. It's just, that's very sparsely populated. I mean, at least the deeper areas, when you go further from Jodhpur onwards towards Jaisalmer, very, and flat lands, as far as the eye can see, I was amazed, you know, you just get a, a, you know, like a scope of just how big this country is, because hours go by, you're on the same road, kilometers keep tumbling, but nothing changes, and it's still the same, you know, everything looks the same, you're still on the same road, and Yes, the kilometers now went from, I don't know, 200 to, uh, I don't know, 150, 125, but you know, it still looks the same. It's so big. And that's one of the lessons I learned. The, our country is massive, man. It's it's just hard to comprehend. Rajasthan, otherwise, hilly uh, sandstone mountains, a lot of dust, a lot of beautiful deserts. I remember the, the night when I left Thar Desert early in the morning and the sun wasn't out here. It was just dark and desolate. There was no light. I turned off my headlamps and it was just pitch black darkness and things like that. Gujarat, surprisingly, uh, really bad roads. Really, really bad roads. I really struggled there. And uh, But again, Gujarat, the highlight of Gujarat had to be Dhalavira, that 5,000-year-old uh, Harappan civilization establishment, which was uh, unearthed not too long ago. And seeing, going to see that, it's not every day you see articles which are, I mean, unless you go to a museum, but this was a whole city which was built. And I I was amazed that this this is, I'm seeing this, I'm witnessing this. You know, you remember we grew up watching uh, pictures of uh, Mohenjo-Daro's Great Bath and these little dancing doll, the clay figurines and stuff. It was all there. I saw a similar sized Great Bath at Dolavira. And I urge uh, travelers to go there and yes for bikers there's something called the road to heaven which is obviously it's it's popular in the bikers community everybody knows about it but do end up going to the other side and seeing these uh, establishments as well it was it was i don't know i it it the entity known as india that the way we know it as india now it's so old 
yes we've been a fragment of different uh, civilizations different kingdoms different invaders have come and established the rules but the entity known as india is so old and that what really sank into me that we come from here this is where it all sort of began for india i mean india's recorded history let's say begins from this period and it's still there to see it's amazing it's it's mind boggling yes you can see pictures but it doesn't actually sink in you know i was there i was walking among these little you know ruinous walls and settlements and i had these visions of these little kids running around in these little alleys and women pull, pulling water from that uh, well over there I, i it was surreal man and i i can't explain it i don't know what happened but things like these you know i was moved so these things like these you can't uh, get off uh, netflix or discovery channel you kind of have to be there so yeah those are my big takeaways the indus valley civilization is one of the most uh, ancient civilizations yeah. with the recorded history mm-hmm. and of course offshoots of those are i think the harappan culture mm mm-hmm. and mohenjo daro and now dolavira of course and yes uh, they are taught in indian schools today but uh, again i think the bent towards european history is yeah. you know heavy yeah you know a lot more about europe than you know about your own backyard so yeah mm-hmm. i think uh, it will be corrected in time yeah or let's say it will be added in time Mm-hmm. so if your take away from rajasthan is vastness and from gujarat it's you know the roots of really the the cradle that is india mm-hmm. what about maharashtra man maharashtra i okay i've spent a lot of time let i won't say a lot i've spent some time in maharashtra and it can be beautiful in the right uh, months like when it's raining and it's lush green and the mountains light up and the waterfalls start it just it's a different like right a, now like right now yeah and i i ended up there in late february early march and i was constantly told this is a, this is the wrong time but there's so many places to explore like i remember i reached pune you were off to office and i was getting a bit restless because i still had that uh, you know i i need to go out uh, i couldn't stay i couldn't stay still picked up my bike and went to see some uh, i don't know 300 bc you know from that era like these uh, buddhist caves which are like i don't know 20 kilometers from your place and then i drove a little bit further i went to pavana lake which is massive and there are just these little gems which sprout out of everywhere and i i think india and you understand this india has a lot of it needs good marketing like if these places existed in europe they would have been like oh look at this place it's amazing oh come here come here they look they look at it it's amazing you know we paradise paradise but i mean these places just sprout out of nothing in india and we we don't even talk about it it's so sad but i was pleasantly surprised man and i had the good fortune of being in navi mumbai during the monsoon season i've seen those waterfalls and i've took i took that bus ride from uh, bombay to pune to meet you i think it was my 30th birthday and i saw those waterfalls in lonavla and i saw the hills of lonavla and we drove through those hills those twisty bends man it's fantastic and the clouds come down it's like a hill station pops out of nowhere and then you're 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 on the coast then you have hills and then you have the plains and then pune itself is uh, it's it's pretty it's it's quite beautiful yeah you took a break in pune and yeah. you went to pursue open water diving Yeah that's right. Now yeah. I'm not I I found this to be the least surprising of your decisions because you spent <laughs> so long at sea and you know of course there'll be that pull. Yeah. So while you've documented your open water diving experiences talk to me about why someone should do this and what are the risks involved 
is this one of those extreme sports that are actually really safe and you know can everyone do it should everyone do it i again it so there are a lot of people who offer these courses you need to do it from uh, something which is recognized look up ratings look up it needs to be paddy certified paddy is professional divers association international something something on those terms it's called paddy p a d i and uh, if you have a dive side dive instructors and an institution which is paddy certified you can more or less be sure that it's it's going to be safe right and they do a lot of training beforehand and they you do you're doing everything under supervision from the beginning and why should somebody do this it's it's a whole other world i mean while i say this i don't want a lot of people to end up in the oceans because then it just ruins a perfectly good ecosystem i mean it's no longer perfect it's been ruined for a bunch of reasons overfishing and global warming to name a few but the experience itself i mean i can't imagine i remember when i was on deck on my on my ship i used to read uh, things like the depth at this point like wherever we were was 3000 meters and i could not comprehend what a depth of 3000 meters feels like or looks like it's 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 you can't you just can't like solid ground is 3 kilometers below you and you're just on water you're floating on something i can't comprehend that i couldn't so that's what drove me to deep sea diving and i wanted to do it right i wanted to get certified not just do a one day trip which let's say most people do most people are uh, they do that i wanted to do it right and uh, that's that's basically what pulled me towards it yeah you had the opportunity to go around andaman islands yeah. and you know this is a part of india that's so far away from the mainland that it's actually closer to some other countries that's true yeah and you know people uh, make very few people make the trip to andaman and nicobar islands you know because of course then those considerations come in that hey in this much money you can go to go. bali or you know wherever or dubai mm. so talk to me a little bit about andaman and nicobar islands and does it feel like a part of india is there indianness in andaman and nicobar islands beyond you know the language spoken and the signboards and stuff does it feel like this is the furthermost outpost of india you know i i felt the indianness when i went to the cellular jail and i witnessed all these uh, historical memorials and they are they still have those uh, cells intact i think most of them are still intact and most wings of the building are still intact they still have uh, buildings where they used to uh, you know hang people they have the buildings where they prisoners were tortured these weapons are still there these they built dummies to demonstrate what they were put through and there's a museum full of people who were uh, put in these cells for what reason and we read about a few incidents like in our history the rollet act the kakori card uh, can't they call it or the train robbery or whatever you just hear about a few of them but there's so many and you read like this person this person this person so and so conspiracy case uh, attempt to murder of so and so person of the british uh, army police whatever thrown into cellular jail kalapani and there's so many it's a museum and you walk and you walk and it's just full of people and there's just names and then there's a there's a somberness in the atmosphere when you enter there you just feel like something bad went down here something really bad happened here and then you hear these stories from these guides i mean i had to hire a guide because i wanted to know everything about it they said things like 
uh, prisoners had their lives regressed imprisonment so they had to extract so much amount of coconut oil and so much amount of mustard oil or whatever oil per day and whoever fell short was publicly beaten up and it was there was no dignity there's nothing they were totally ruthless mercenary like behavior and uh, people spent years eight years 10 years god knows how many years and uh, there was one very disturbing uh, story which i'm remembering now it's like something if somebody was disobedient or they didn't meet their quota they would make him wear like a dress which was made out of jute bag like a gunny bag but that uh, and that said and remember andaman is tropical and it's hot as hell that thing keeps rubbing against your skin and you develop blisters and scars and uh, you know rashes and it's you have to wear it for a whole week and you can't take it off to a point where the cell the cells are designed in such a way that the fronts of a few cells in this wing let's say face the back of the other cells in the other wing so you can't talk to each other also you you just can't talk to somebody who's opposite to you it was terrible man and i felt the pain there like that bit felt like yes this really is a part of india uh didn't get to explore much did port blair for a, for a day then i was mostly in havelock island havelock island is very touristy lot of uh, resorts good uh, green reel very lot of untouched uh, uh, beaches lot of untouched mountains and forest area radhanagar beach for instance i kid you not you have you will not find a better beach in india than radhanagar beach in uh, havelock island fantastic mind blowing it's pristine it's beautiful it's flat and there's mountains on either side i felt like i was in i don't know south of spain or something it's just brilliant so yeah it does it does feel like india yeah so you did your diverse course and now you have a license which yeah. means that you can walk into any paddy certified site uh, look up an instructor do you need an instructor still to do no, they, water diving they recommend doing it in pairs uh if i don't have a buddy they'll probably send somebody with me because it's not uh, advisable to just do it because anything can go wrong line gets tangled in something line gets cut you start losing hair uh, whatever it can can bunch of things can go wrong so they recommend going with uh, with a partner a buddy but yeah. you can you can now walk in with your certificate to any certified site in the world yes and i intend to i fully intend to i think during my semester break i want to find out some nice sites i think somewhere off the coast of florida they have some really good sites a lot of good world war 2 wrecks things like that <laughs> i want to really look them up yeah so that's that's what i'm going i want to do my advanced uh, divers thing also I, there was there was just not enough time so yeah now that's that's also in the future yeah and then you got back and of course you did what every indian on a west coast road trip should do which is hit goa absolutely and goa has been covered in all shapes and sizes and angles so we're not going to talk too much about it yeah. but tell me about when you left goa and started making your way down south now these are some of the roads that are uh, least covered by bloggers etc you know it's mm-hmm. not until you get to kerala where you start seeing a lot of footage by yeah. people who've done these roads so talk to me about that uh, those those stretches between goa and kanyakumari you know i was I remember I was getting a bit angry back then because I for the in the month of March I had barely ridden anything. I was in Pune for a bit hanging out with you for a week then I went to Andamans. Uh then I drove from Pune to Goa which was like a two day trip and then I was in Goa for a week I was barely riding I was getting angry like I need to get back on the road and I'm not doing anything. So I left Goa with a vengeance. I'm like my next stop is just going to be I don't know somewhere Kanyakumari or on the east coast. I'm not going to stop now. I'm just going to go. and that's i left goa with a vengeance and then i was there's a road which runs down the west coast i i forget it's nh60 
ஏன்ங்களோர்ங்களோர்ங்களோர்ங்களோர்ங்களோர்ங்களோர்ங்களோர்ங்களோர்ங்களோர்ங்களோர்ங்களோர்ங்களோர்ங்களோர்ங்கள
they talk about this coast to coast boundary to boundary you know uh, travel mm. so i guess what i'm really asking you is uh, can i can one do like a you know coast to coast cannonball run can i for instance pick up my car and get to kanyakumari tomorrow is this advisable is this something you can do in india it's it's totally doable i mean the roads have improved a lot but not your car your car struggles for ground clearance you'll you'll really suffer like i get this like okay everybody talks about kerala and they're like you have to see kerala it's beautiful i hated it two lane roads shops on either side you can't overtake and fine the road is okay but you can't overtake that's you in some market and somebody has spilled his beans and then you have to wait for him to pick it up it's i hated it i took a detour and i talked to a few friends who had done this circuit i split from kerala and i head towards uh tamil nadu which was so much better i remember from calicut i was planning to go down but the stretch between mangalore and calicut was 200 something kilometers of just dug up roads it's all dug up nothing like bulldozers and road rollers on the side but there's no people there so i i just like diverted course but again the roads are there and then i i ran into somebody i ran into i don't know where i think it was madurai or somewhere where, and you know ran into somebody and i asked he asked me what are you doing i said i started from delhi and now i've come to kanyakumari and then he said oh you're doing k2k i'm like what's k2k he's like oh it's kashmir to kanyakumari apparently it's a thing people do and i had no idea about it and i said no i didn't go straight down the country i went around the around the coast and i intend to go up the east coast and back but people do kashmir to kanyakumari i mean kid you not a friend of mine and he's done the podcast as well um, way before he did uh, bombay to kanyakumari on a bicycle so i mean if you have the will you have the means then you know sky's the limit i guess you can do it so you left kanyakumari and you headed up you hit madurai of course on your yeah. way down and then when you were on your way back up you went to uh of the vicinity of coimbatore is that no right? i i skipped uh, madurai on my way down i hit this little riverside town called polachi just on the border of tamil nadu and uh, kerala and polachi is always have a special place in my mind because it is in that town i remember i was so tired i had uh, Uh, just settled into my room i was feeling a bit feverish i was in bed and then i got the acceptance letters from two universities on the same day that i've been accepted in this one and this one and polachi was there and i was i remember i sat down next to the river and i was like what a day <laughs> i'm sitting next to a river there's like cows and birds and little people swimming in the river enjoying having a good time the sun is setting coconut palm trees everywhere i'm there uh and yeah and that that feeling that i've just been accepted into a university is this is just something else man so that place will always have a you know place in my heart from palachi i went down to kanyakumari kanyakumari then i went back to madurai and by the way madurai kanyakumari one of the best roads to drive on best roads to drive on fantastic so yeah up from madurai i hit uh, so again by this point i had to you know rally back because now the paperwork has got to start so i really started rushing back so i i planned to cut through the country uh, hit uh, bangalore anantpur and then hyderabad those were my next stops here yeah. and uh, what was it like being in a big city after being away from a big city for so long how was bangalore and how was hyderabad oh man oh, bangalore traffic i entered bangalore on a weekend at 12 o'clock uh, noon hell okay 
I don't know what the roads are. Like there's a service lane which runs parallel to the main road, but there are people pouring out from the service lane trying to join the main road. Then they want to take a U-turn and that blocks everybody. Their bus is on the wrong side. I don't know what's going on in Bangalore. Terrible, bloody traffic. And uh, I remember I was cruising. I covered, I don't know, 200 something kilometers in four, four and a half hours. The last 20, 30 kilometers took me an extra hour and 15 minutes to just commute through Bangalore. That was like, man, I I don't like cities anymore. <laughs> yeah. Was Hyderabad any better? Relatively, slightly better. But again, peak rush hour traffic entered in the afternoon. Uh, crazy traffic. It was, yeah. Oh, I hated it. Yeah. From Hyderabad, you went up the East Coast. Yeah. And you hit Bhubaneswar. That was months Tell later. Tell me I... about that. Tell me about the Chilka Lake crossing. I know you went to Vizag <laughs> as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so it was, I stopped enjoying my bike trip because I was hurrying back. I was not enjoying it. I was not stopping for pictures. I was not stopping for uh, coffee breaks or anything. I was just not, I was just rushing back. I reached Hyderabad, I was at my friend's place and I realized, what am I doing? Then I had an idea. I said, I, this work that is pending, this paperwork that is pending, it was just, it was just about sending my uh, Aadhaar card and my PAN card, card, one copy to some guy who's going to process my loan. That's it. I said, why am I hurrying back for this? I can just, so I parked my bike in Hyderabad. I flew to Delhi, finished my paperwork in half an hour, flew back the same uh, evening, picked up my bike the next day and changed course. I was going up the center of India. And then I was like, I can't, I need to, you know, uh, buy back some time. So I head east towards uh, Vizag and uh, Vijayawada also in the middle. And then I went up the east coast. Plan was to hit Puri. And then between Vizag and Puri, you uh, encounter the Chilka Lake. So I hit a petrol station just before the Chilka Lake. And uh, I, I opened up maps and I was looking and then there was a route which went through the lake. I was amazed. Like, have they built a road through the lake now? What's What's going on? So I asked the guy, I said, what's, what's the deal here? He said, no, no, you have to drive up to this place. You get on a ferry and then the ferry takes you across and then you can drive up from there. I said, okay, what about the other road? He's like, the other road is a national highway. It's no, there's no big deal. You'll, you'll see the lake from a distance, but uh, not that scenic. So I was like, huh, idea, <laughs> let's do this. They so got on that road. It was a horrible road, 50 kilometers of just bumps and, uh, speed breakers and road potholes and then you drive through a really really desolate part of Odisha which is just stricken with poverty and really you know it, it really sunk in you know these areas you know they just I don't know they're they're not in the limelight I would say they're just kind of out of sight out of mind kind of places you know if you don't know about this you just don't know about this drove through these places got some side eye like what's this guy doing on a bike here so anyway I reached the station and there was no ferry and it was, I think it was 10 o'clock in the morning. And then I said, what's going on? The guy says, the ferry comes at two. So I said, damn. So my options were to drive back or wait for the ferry. And then this chappy shows up and he says, wait, I can take you across. I'm like, wait, what? In what? He's like, in that. And there's a wooden dinghy. Okay. <laughs> and I wouldn't trust my life with that boat, but I, I don't know what mindset I was in. I was like, fine, let's do this. It'll make for a good story. It's, it's going to be hilarious. And then I was like, he... I don't know, he basically walked the bike onto the thing and the, the boat kind of bodily sank, you know. The only saving grace I had was like before he, I, I saw him unload like 10 bikes before 
from that same dinghy, all pulsers and splendors and whatever, you know, lighter bikes. And then he assured me, sir, you will be the only person on my board. You pay me this much. I'll take you across. Don't worry. Don't worry. We'll do this. And I said, fine. It's going to be hilarious. So I went on that board, put my bike there, secured it. And then we went across and it was funny for a bit. And then when we had to disembark, it became really unfunny really quickly because then I realized, oh, this is a really heavy bike. And we had to roll the bike up the little bulwark sort of thing on the side of the boat and then roll it off the plank. And I kept telling this guy, you need another plank where you can walk because he intended to hold the bike, walk it on the plank and then jump off the boat onto land and then still roll the bike. I'm like, this bike is going to fall on you or it's going to go in the water. Don't do this. But he was confident. He's like, no, I can do this. I'm, I've been doing this forever. And then when we rolled the bike, the front tire went off, but then the exhaust started touching the bulwark of the, of the, of the boat. He's like, no, no, let's just put a stone here. We'll roll it over the stone. And I'm like, what are we doing? My bike will end up in the water. <laughs> and it became really unfunny. And mind you, this is now, what is this? This is April now. I think first April, it was hot. The sun was out. I was wearing the heavy rider's jacket. I'm sweating. And I still have to drive to Puri at this point. I'm still at Chilka Lake. Finally, we roll off the boat and he managed to keep it upright. And then uh, when I picked up the bike, it was deep in the sand. So when I gave it the beans, there's a lot of sand flying out and I finally got some traction and I rolled up and I was like, yeah, that was a bad idea. <laughs> Never again. <laughs> so, yeah. As a point of curiosity, how much did the guy charge you to row you, to take you across the lake? I, I still think I was ripped off. I think it was a 30, 35 minute lake crossing. He charged me 650 bucks for it. Yeah. I think it was pretty cheap. Nowhere in this <laughs> on this planet will you get to be on a ferry with a bike and pay less than ten dollars for it. Yeah, well, but I, I was told like the other people who were just like people crossing, they were paying like fifty bucks for crossing it. So I don't know why I was charged six fifty. I don't know out of town tax, I guess, out of towner tax, I guess, whatever. Out of town tax, indeed. Yeah, and of course, then you roll through uh, UP. Yeah, a lot of UP. Yeah, a lot of UP, a lot of Bihar, a lot of Jharkhand, yeah. What are, what are some of the uh, lingering memories from those areas? Of course, the Aarti and Varanasi and the Ghats, etc. But beyond the religious significance of Varanasi and beyond the, you know, long plains of Uttar Pradesh, what are, what is something that will stay with you? So it was, these are three days back to back, okay? And then I think it's, this is something you pointed out. Like I was in Bodh Gaya, which is, let's say, the birthplace of Buddhism, where... Uh, Prince Siddhartha achieved enlightenment and became Gautam Buddha. And I went to that people tree where he achieved enlightenment. That was something interesting. The next day I was in Banaras watching the Aarti, watching a lakh or I don't know how many people assemble and, you know, summon the gods, man. Like there was such a spectacle, fire, brimstone and smoke and bells and chanting. It's, it's amazing. I mean, that sight has still stuck with me. And then the next day I was in Agra. You know, not Agra, I was in Lucknow, which was, uh, you know, so much of Islamic architecture and, you know, Islamic culture there. It's like three days of such variance in the same state, barely hundreds of kilometers from each other. And you pointed this out. You've gone from the crucible of Buddhism to Hinduism and now Islamic uh, significance. Man, I was like, I was, I don't know, I don't know what I was at this point. I was just taking it all in. It was so overwhelming. And what will stay with me, I remember, is uh, when I left uh, when I left Banaras and I was heading towards Lucknow, we hit this expressway which is built uh, by the government, purely empty and 
you know, wheat fields as far as the eye can see. It was just amazing. And I had just seen this movie Swades the day before in the hotel. I was watching it on my iPad and then, uh, you know, the fields and the the indianness of it all just sunk in and i i don't know for the very first time you can call it i felt so indian i don't know i i broke into tears i don't know why i can't explain it i was looking at these fields and i could see the people working with their hands you know cutting the crop and there was just that wheat dust in the air and i was just moved to tears when i saw that so uttar pradesh you know when you think of india you see fields you see uh cows you see uh, you know i don't know you see rivers that india is uttar pradesh yeah <laughs> all of it do you think uh, do you think there is more that binds us than you know uh, our shared love for the army patriotism you know our national symbols and of course the cricket team you know when you go from kanyakumari to uttar pradesh in the space of 8 9 days do you think there is stuff that binds us or do you think all of it is very fragile hard to say you know it's it depends i mean we are still very regionalist people take pride in the regions they are from i mean the indianness yes it's a it's a bigger umbrella but people take pride in being bengalis or marathis or jats or rajputs before they feel that pride for being indian i that's my just my take on it i think it'll take some time it, because india as an entity is still relatively new you know i think it takes it'll take a while i would say yeah do you think the rise of the big cities where all the jobs are will you know reduce this a bit because if you live in bangalore long enough you're bangalorean you're not kannad or you're not yeah possibly you know, any from anywhere else you know just how bombay and delhi became cosmopolitan a bit you know yeah. not delhi so much but bombay for sure yeah yeah okay it's possible so really you did hmm. you did all of this you went around india you became a drone pilot you became a diver and you know you you figured out a bunch of things and you felt indian would you do it all over again I don't think I'm done yet. I mean there's so much of India unexplored. I still haven't touched the east. I mean the eastmost I went was uh Puri. And there's a whole the north the seven sisters are still untouched because I remember there were some riots happening in Bangalore and Bengal and there was a landslide in Sikkim. My plan was to hit Sikkim. Then I had to abandon that because of that. So I turned back in. I still haven't done the great north. Himachal, Ladakh, all these places are still left and I don't think I can comment. I wanted to do an episode on the biggest Uh, the best roads to drive on in india but i don't think i have driven on all the roads so i don't think i'm done yet there's still a lot more left in india to explore in india all of central india is left i've completely bypassed madhya pradesh parts of maharashtra karnataka so many have just been bypassed so yeah what is what is the difference between being a student and going to the states as a 23 year old versus after having seen your country the way you want to see it as a 33 year old does it give you a little more appreciation or does it or is it the same it's hard to say i mean honestly i've never i haven't thought about it i guess when you're younger you're more focused on graduating quickly getting a job and you know uh, being on your own to feed again when you're older you get more uh, perspective i guess i guess i'll focus more on the learning experience and the college experience and uh what it unlocks i guess i don't know i think it'll be more uh, 
think I might enjoy it more than uh, somebody who's in their 20s who's just focused on uh, living frugally and paying the bills and eventually paying off that uh, student loan. So hard to say. I mean, I don't know. But uh, I would say this trip across India has cleared a few things for me. I don't have this allure of settling in the West. I don't intend to uh, be there for long post, even let's say post-graduation. If I do get a job, I will work for a few years and then see. I don't have an intention of giving up my Indian citizenship. I don't have that. I mean, it's it's uh, it's commonplace for a lot of people who are chasing degrees just to get citizenship into different countries. People do that. And that's a less emphasis on learning rather than where you end up. I don't think I have that. And this trip across India has sort of cemented that even further. So, yeah, I think that's that's what I can tell. I guess I'll know more when I'm there. Yeah. Ten years of roaming around the world's oceans mm-hmm. and ten weeks of roaming around the Indian landscape. Yeah. And you're saying that the 10 weeks made you feel more Indian than the 30 or so years that came before it. I mean, I was, where was, I was barely here, man. Like I started sailing when I was, I, I went to sea when I was 18 as a cadet. And then post that I picked up my rank at 21, 22. And I've just been sailing since then. And what, you know, I, I have not been a traveler. I have not gone anywhere. Prior to this, I had not gone anywhere. Like I said, I would come home, stay at home, chill, do whatever, meet some friends. That's about it. And it's it's experiences like these which kind of, I don't know, remind you of where you are and where you've come from, you know. Like the things I saw at Dolavira, for instance. I, I can't explain it. But it just, it's something which is in me now. And no amount of staying at home can do that to me. So I think I needed to do this to reach where I am. Yeah. From ancient history of Dhalavira to modern uh, history or what will be modern history in 20-30 years, the mm. Statue of Unity, you know, it's <laughs> divided the uh, populace. Yeah. People have called it a waste of money. People have, you know, lambasted it. You went there with an open mind. Tell mm. me about the Statue of Unity. I went there Strictly with the agenda to ridicule it. I'll be honest. I was thinking I'm going to make some videos on social media saying, what's the point? I mean, we wasted so much money on this. What, what is this? There's no point. It is a sight to behold. It's a bit... I'm not so sold on the location, but then I get the historical importance. But it's a bit out of the way. So it's no wonder the footfall is not so much as of now. Because it's not easily accessible. It's not in one of the big cities like... Like how a Statue of Liberty gets so much uh, footfall, but it's in New York. Same with the Eiffel Tower. It's in Paris. You land in Paris, you can see the Eiffel Tower. It's right there. But this, you got to travel a lot further. It's a nicely built town, a lot of hotels, a lot of shops, a lot of things to do there. And uh, I remember I reached there and I started driving. I was on my bike. I started driving and I could see the head from a distance. And it's just sort of like a camber on the road. And it's just getting unfurled. And slowly, slowly, it just sort of gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's just like at a point where you're right next to it on the road. And it's still, you, you, your brain struggles to understand the scope because you've got mountains around you. And there's still something which is towering above all of that. And then I parked my bike and I walked towards the statue and it still grows. And I remember I called you on a WhatsApp video and I called you and I showed you this. And you were like, what is this? It's a... It's an engineering marvel. I was a bit shell-shocked of how much I ended up 
just looking at it, I, I couldn't take my eyes off. And then uh, they've built an elevator inside the statue so you can rise up to the chest cavity and then you can look at the reservoir and the dam, which Sardar Sarovar Dam, which was apparently a you know dream of Sardar Patel. And then there's also a section which is like cordoned off by fiberglass and you can look inside the statue and you can see how uh, it's been built, how it's been reinforced. And that itself, I, I was like, this, this is well built. It's proper. And again, it's now it's, it's built of copper. So it's, it's a lot darker in shade. But when it was built and un, you know, unveiled to the public, it was shining. It was golden in color, almost copperish golden. So that must have been something. But I, again, you can't see it now. So I, I was like, okay, I, I, I see it. I like it. Was it entirely necessary? Up for debate, up for everyone's individual perception. But whatever they've built, it's it's quite something. It's a sight to behold. Yeah, that's all I'll say about that. Well, if you look at history, people mm. need beacons to rally around, right? To remind themselves of the greatness, to self-propagate that myth that where I am is the greatest place for me to be. Yeah. And Indian myths are a bit, the legacy is a bit all over the place, right? The monuments are Mughal. Yeah. The colonial structures are British. Mm. So maybe it's a part of the journey where India reclaims or at least builds another layer on top of the myth. And, you know, you know, this legend that we are telling ourselves that we are in the greatest country of them all. I get that. Are we in the greatest country of them all? I... Certainly believe so. And I've said this before, we have been repeatedly robbed by people, invaders, civilizations, colonizers. We could have been something so much. What is it stat? Do you remember the stat? Uh, prior to the British coming, our India's contribution to the global GDP was some 30 odd percent. And when the British has left, it was down to half 20, a percent. 20, 20 percent. Yeah, it was down to half a percent by the time the British has left. So we, I don't know, we could have been a superpower, man. And we could have been doing incredible things. Like, look at the, I don't know if you've seen the series Rocket Boys. You've seen Rocket Boys, right? Yeah. Imagine if India had that kind of capital lying around and then somebody motivated came and wanted to start a, start India space program. And they still managed to do so on very minimal resources and very minimal technology. And they still managed to get off the ground. Imagine if we had that kind of resources, where would we be? We could be, we would have been a beacon of, you know, of the world. Like this is where things happen. So I don't know, man. Why, why Rocket Boys? Why Rocket Boys? Let's talk about the flavor of the summer. Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer, yeah. The, the nuclear bomb, yeah. So India conducted its own nuclear test. Yes. Uh, 20 years after the, 20, 25 years after the Manhattan Project. True. True, true, true. So, yeah, maybe 30 years. But I think years. Rocket Boys... That series emphasizes how India was badly crippled and we relied heavily on the West to assist us and help us with funding and research and this. And, uh, you know, we got caught in this whole political crossfire of between the Cold War happening, God knows what all is going on. But had none of this happened, India could have been something, man, I guess. For instance, I was in Bodh Gaya and then I went to this museum and a lot of these Buddhist uh, statues had their heads cut off. And I asked this guy, what's the deal here? He said, no, these invaders came in and they did not want Buddhism to propagate. And they've just sort of decapitated all the statues. And all we could find was this, the, the torso. So influences have been cut down. Resources have been plundered. I don't know, man. We could have in a parallel world where nothing bad happened to India. Who knows where we ended up? Who knows? Could have been something else. Having, 
having said that brother you yeah. know now that we've lived in this country for 30 odd years as adults mm. it's pretty gratifying to be a part of a country on a trajectory where growth is uh, palpable yeah. you know tough has changed so much and if i look back at even 2014 you know 10 years ago stuff mm. has changed so much and if in 2014 we look back at 2004 and in 2004 yeah. if we look back at 94 every 10 years the yeah. change has been so much in india it's pretty gratifying you know and i think i i now get it why you say that you know uh, you are able to appreciate that much more when you have seen the country on your own money yeah visibly you know just being brought up and then you know going abroad as a student and i think it will hold you well you know going for the sake of learning rather than going for the sake of a job and then eventually a green card and you know bringing up your kids in some little india in brampton or ontario or new york or London manchester or wherever, manchester chizik or manchester wherever it is well, yeah yeah or 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 sydney melbourne or you know calgary or montreal or vancouver wherever it is i mean uh, also you know sort of you understand why when people go abroad they become more indian yeah you know? <laughs> it's like yeah. everything becomes <laughs> amplified and we see it in our own family as well yeah uh, you know i think one realizes that these strings are not strings but these are you know massive sort of anchors and mm. this is where your roots are good so the final inevitable question yeah if i am to do this in my amg a35 <laughs> what is the route that i have to take and you know all the problems of ground clearance etc notwithstanding what do you recommend to a person who is doing a need for speed india edition aren't they building some kind of super highway between the big cities india sorry delhi bombay chennai something they are building something stick to they that building, they are building delhi bombay first but yeah. if i am to do kanyakumari and if then if i am to go all the way up what what should i do and where should i go i would say follow my route the road between okay let me recall now but the road between pune to where did i start i think i stopped at kolhapur for one night it was good that was that's a good road then i went to goa so goa i the mistake i made i took the south road because i was staying in south goa so i went through some kind of a nature reserve which they, which had no road there was no road it was just gravel for 20 30 odd kilometers where i spent almost a couple of like an hour and a half just crossing that stretch go from the north side of goa cut through goa goa itself okay you might get some traffic uh, the road till mangalore is fine past mangalore down the west coast it's crap you got to cut in go towards uh coimbatore or kunnur or one of these kodaikanal one of these places these hill stationy places these are good then by some uh, you're going to have take some little bit of a bad road and somehow find yourself on the madurai kanyakumari expressway now that road as you can give it the juice give it the beans man like pop up that launch control and do a wheelie off the road i mean you can do whatever you want it's fantastic that road is brilliant all the way till you reach the dead end of the coast of india there's a road right there you can drive right up to that point that's it that's the road you got to take yeah all righty it's been a pleasure brother being a uh, part again of the two bros podcast 100th episode and it's no, been it... a pleasure recounting this journey with you you know i have <laughs> 
live this journey with you vicariously we had our chats every single day and you know it felt like i was on the road with you chats and yeah, now talking the... about live location every single morning was a routine man switch on live location and then head out yeah, yeah. <laughs> kudos to technology at least yeah, you know, some bits of it really help yeah. and uh, now looking back at this journey 3 months down the line i feel that this is one of those things that is really pivotal to mm-hmm. you know how you will be as a person i know that i've reignited my desire to see a bit of india through your trip mm-hmm and uh, let's see when i hit the road i would say start with maharashtra itself they have some amazing locations you know go hit pavana lake not in your car your car is going to struggle <laughs> you need a you need to bring back the sonnet apparently <laughs> anyway that's yeah i would i mean totally do it man if and i would recommend you start from dolavira fly out to amdabad go to burj from burj take the road to heaven go to dolavira spend a night there uh watch the sunrise on the crucible of uh, harappan civilization and then uh, let it let it sink in and then uh, start from there i would say and it's right next to you already yeah i have a question for you bro already hit it a lot of listeners of ours have been wondering uh, i mean it's called the two bros podcast but it's just me i mean they're tired of listening to my voice question for you is will we see you again on a subsequent episode or will you again be a regular again is that is that something we can foresee in the future well now that the football season's beginning <laughs> yeah you know it <laughs> there's something to do every week mm-hmm. so yeah don't count me out we could even do like a raw and smackdown review brother we could do that that's also <laughs> a thing <laughs> now that you're into you're properly won't, into won't, it won't that be i mean something. you've come to a point where you see episodes before i see episodes i mean come on i know i wouldn't i wouldn't have imagined that yeah <laughs> there's a whole bunch of things to unravel now that millennial pop culture is taking over the world again mm-hmm. and uh, yeah let's see if we can do this on a regular basis so i will be taking this mic with me i'm not selling this this, this is a very good mic i'm going to take it with me and it doesn't weigh as much i'm going to take it with me i'm going to record my journey there as well because i mean i'm pretty sure i'm going to have things to talk about when i get there it's going to be interesting yeah all right brother Alrighty. Thank you so much for having me. Yep, thank you Signing for taking off, time off on your day off and I will see you around. See you brother. See ya.